Okay. If you have Bibles with you, please open up to Matthew chapter 5. Oh, yeah, the kids are free to go. Thank you, John. Our Sunday school leader extraordinaire. Or at the moment, he kind of looks like the Pied Piper. All the kids following him out. We appreciate John. Um, you know, just you know, a, a little other thought on that. My, my mindset is that many hands make for light work. You know, so we've got a lot of musically talented people here. We actually have four different worship teams going. So one team gets to do it uh, one week a month. That works out pretty good, right? We kind of spread it out. Nobody gets burnt out in the process. We get to have a variety of tastes and flavors. Lots of people get to use their gifts and talents. I don't know. That sounds like a win-win, you know, all the way around for me. I used to be a, a worship leader on Sunday. I used to be the only worship leader on Sunday, so every Sunday have to be there. You know, you get kind of get tired after a while. So I kind of like that we have it all spread out. Well, we like to apply the same philosophy to children's church. Um, we need two teachers a week with the variety of age groups that we have. If we can get eight people to sign up, then it's only once a month, basically, that, that people have to do it. We kind of spread it out. Nobody's overwhelmed. Nobody gets burnt out in the process. Nobody has to miss church every, you know, the rest of the service every Sunday. So I know a few people spoke to John last week. If that you have a heart for that, you're interested in doing that, let him know, and he'll be happy to find a, a spot to plug you in. Okay, so last week, um, I began a new series of messages on the Beatitudes. And uh, today, I'll, I'll offer the second uh, in that series. Um, last week, we looked at the first Beatitude, which says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I told you how the Beatitudes are an introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. It's if you will, Jesus' declaration of the kingdom. The way we're looking at it, and what I believe that the Beatitudes represent, at least, is the character of kingdom citizens. If we're citizens of the kingdom of God, then the characteristics or the character of those citizens can be found uh, in Jesus' uh, message, the Beatitudes. In Jesus, in uh, excuse me, in the Beatitude, Jesus sets forth both the nature and aspirations of citizens in His kingdom. We here at the bridge, we're learning. We're in the process of developing those character traits. We're learning what it is to be characters in God's kingdom. I told you that the the Greek word for blessed, blessed are, in the Beatitudes, is the word. Uh, Macareos. If you can't remember that, think of Macarena, and you'll be pretty close to it. <laughs> and it means happy or blessed. Most people are happy when they were doing the Macarena, right? It's the word blessed. Nadine <laughs> tells me that 30 years later I could bring the funny, and it's all due to her. She worked hard on me for 30 years. Chipping away at the intense calm, and now you get to see a little funny every once in a while. You like that, huh? It's the truth, absolutely. Well, this word for happy or blessed means more than being externally comfortable or entertained in a moment. 
it's really speaking about something that happens internally, a happiness, a sense of being blessed that is not subject to external circumstances. So you can be living with this blessed character trait no matter what the external circumstances of your life are. These character traits are not dependent upon everything in your life being in perfect order, every relationship being exactly what it want you, you want it to be, having all your bills paid, I mean, whatever. It's this kind of blessedness is what comes even if all those things are not the way you'd like them to be. This is the word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5. I told you last week that the word poor, just to do a little, a little review, was a very strong word. It's a powerful word in the original text. And it speaks about a lowly beggar. The word poor here speaks about one who is crouched down in humility. And it means to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What that actually means is that we recognize that we have no spiritual assets. That when we come before God, we come before him bankrupt. We don't come before him strong and powerful and capable and able in our own strength. We come before him with nothing. We know and we admit our spiritual that we're spiritually bankrupt in and of ourselves. We bring nothing to the table. But God brings everything to the table. We lack nothing because he has everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit that we could come and sit at his table where he provides all things. That's why we're blessed. We recognize our condition of being spiritually bankrupt before God who has everything, who loves us extravagantly, and who's rich in mercy. Guys, that's a good deal. <laughs> you know what? That fits. That works. Scripture tells us to those, these blessed who are poor in spirit, to them belong the kingdom of heaven. And I told you last week that the kingdom encompasses the sphere of influence of a king. The kingdom of heaven is the place of God's dynamic rule, his dynamic reign. It's his authority, his assertive authority over all things, and especially over the enemy and his works. That was kind of a little review from last week, the first beatitude. Then I want to look at the second beatitude, which is blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So let's read through the beatitudes again, beginning at verse 1 in Matthew chapter 5, and then we'll take a look at the second beatitude. The Word of God says that, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they are comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, 
They persecuted the prophets who were before you. Lord, I pray that you would open us up today and that your word would have its absolute full impact on us, that the truth of your word would go forth, that truth would set us free and change us to make us more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. So I want to look at the second character trait today of kingdom citizens. I want to look at mournfulness. Now you look at this, I'm thinking, how odd. (laughs) Of all the things that Jesus could list, mournfulness. What does it mean to mourn? Why is it blessed? (laughs) What does it mean here to mourn? What's so blessed about it? Why is it a character trait of kingdom citizenship? Jesus said it. Why did he say it? What does it mean? Let's take a closer look. The word mourn here, in the Greek, penseos, means to mourn, to lament, or to wail. It's not referring to a mild type of mourning. It's not the stoic, manly figure who's deeply moved by something and you gently see a little tear come down the side of his cheek. It's not that kind of mourning. We're talking, you know, out of control, <laughs> snot-producing, wailing from the depth of your being. Th- this is what this word mourning means here. It means to cry from, the, from your gut. It means to be overwhelmed with mourning. I haven't had too many experiences in my life where I've mourned and wailed like this. But one, when I, when I read the definition of this word, one came clearly to mind. I remember when my mother passed away. It was 20 years ago. And uh, she had been sick for a very long time, bad heart. And we were living in Queens at the time. My family all lived in Brooklyn. And we got the phone call that mom was very sick. And you have to understand, mom had been sick for most of my life. I'd gotten lots of these phone calls. And I remember getting the phone call from my sister-in-law. said, look, mom had a heart attack. It's really bad this time. you got to come. I'm like, okay. I hung up the phone, and I went and laid back down again. Because I've gotten 15 phone calls like this before, and you know they were at the hospital, and my family were experts at camping out at the hospital. I'm the furthest away. I'll get there. I'll get there soon enough. So I lay down for a few more minutes. I did get up, it was, it was in the middle of the night, drove all the way to Coney Island Hospital in Brooklyn. And like, I mean, it was a holiday weekend. It's Memorial Day in May, right? Labor Day in September, Memorial Day special. I get them confused. Memorial Day weekend. Don't get sick and die on a holiday weekend. Emergency rooms are a zoo, okay? We got there and it's just overflowing with people. Who's bleeding, who got stabbed, who was in a car accident. And in the midst of this chaos, is the Zawacki family all huddled in a corner of the waiting room, waiting desperately for somebody to come out and give us an update on what's going on. And so at one point, we, um, my brother Ricky and I, we decided, you know, we waited long enough. And we thought if we just walked through the doors that we had enough of an air of confidence about us where we looked like we knew where we were going and we acted as if we belonged there, that nobody would bother us. And you know what? We were right. <laughs> we did. We just kind of burst through the doors and looked around until we could find her. And she had you know, one of these little deals with the curtain around her. And there, was, there were just people stacked up all over the place. It was a zoo. And 
I don't have a medical degree, but I got to tell you what, you didn't need one. As soon as you looked at her, you know, I could tell mom's not recovering from this. She was still alive, but it was, it was pretty bad. And so we went back out to the waiting room and told our family, you know, it didn't look good. And, and the, she was kind of in a comatose sort of state. And we didn't know how long this was going to last. We didn't know if this was going to be hours or days. And most of the family had been there already, so we, we devised a plan. Like I said, we'd done this before. And so we told, um, we told the rest of the family, why don't you guys go home and get some sleep? My dad said, look, I'm not leaving. I'm staying, which was understandable. And th- since I was the last one to come and I had come the furthest to get there, I said, I'll stay with you guys. And so I did. And while we were there, you know, everybody who was dying died. The people who were bleeding were stitched up and the bleeding stopped. And eventually it was early enough in the morning, four or five o'clock in the morning, and you know, those who were sick and drunk all found their ways home or to a hospital bed. It was quiet. And Dad needed a cigarette, so he stepped outside. And in a moment, he said something to me that I know he meant as a compliment. And if you asked him today, he would tell you it was a compliment. But I got to tell you, it put so much bondage on me in the moment. But he told me, well, we're waiting out there. The rest of the family's all gone. It's just him and I. We're standing outside in the early morning hours. Coming on hospital in Brooklyn. And he says to me, he says, you know, he says, I always told your mother that when this day comes, came, that you would be the one I could count on. That's a compliment, right? But I got to tell you what, in that moment, no fault of his, I took on a burden of responsibility that I don't think I was ever designed to carry, and I don't think he ever wanted me to carry. But I took this burden on me where dad's depending on me. I can't let him down because he told my dying mother that I would be the one he could count on in this moment of crisis. And so effectively what I did is I took all my emotions and I just stuffed them so that I could function in the moment, so I could rise up and seize the moment and do whatever has to be done for my father and for the family. And so with a great degree of clumsy awkwardness, I did the best I could over the next she died a few hours later, and as we went through the whole process of you know, mourning her death, I did the best I could to deal with it, but I never cried. We had a memorial service for her at the church uh, that we had all attended in the neighborhood I grew up in, and um, 500 people showed up at this memorial service. So everything that my mother lacked in her physical body, and there were so many limitations, she had an amazing capacity to love people. And in the end, all those people she loved showed up to honor her life. And I had, during one of the earlier times when I got the phone call, hey, we don't know if mom's going to make it. I think she was going to have a, some type of procedure. And the doctor told us, look, mm, it's about 50-50. We don't know if she'll survive this procedure. But she needs to have it. Okay. I think she was at St. Vincent's Hospital in the city at that point. I decided what I would do is I would write, I wrote her a song. I play guitar. Most of you know that. And I had written her a song, and then I would go to the hospital and play that song for her. She loved the song. She's my mother. I wrote a song for her. How she doesn't like it, right? And so my father asked if I would sing the song I'd written for her at the memorial service. 500 people. I, I take out my guitar. I sing the whole song. There's not a dry eye in the house except mine. I didn't cry. I didn't cry when she died. I didn't cry when we mourned her. I didn't cry when I sang. Because Dad knew that I would be the one <laughs> he could depend upon when this hour came. 
And then about three months later, it's late at night. The kids are in bed already. My kids are small at this point, 20 years ago. Nadine's already up to bed, but we had just for the first time gotten cable television. And man, I finally had more than channels 2, 5, 7, 9, and 11. And I had a remote control. I could flick through channels forever. I'm just, I'm thinking this is the coolest thing in the world. I'm flicking through channels like crazy. I'm, you gotta go to bed, I'm having fun here. And I flicked by ESPN. I mean, it wasn't but three seconds. And there's some football player on there who's being interviewed. The guy's big as a house. He's a monstrous guy. And here's this little reporter walking next to him, and she's interviewing him. And he says something along the lines of um, he owes it all to his mother, you know, and that he really misses her. She had just passed away. Well, I was just flicking channels. This is three months later. I wasn't even thinking about mom. But however he said what he said, it was like a baseball bat in the face. I mean, boom, it just hit me. I got of nowhere. And I started to wail. I mean, I started to cry as hard as I've ever cried in my whole life from the depth of my being. I mean, I, these tears came up out of my toes. And I'm just crying my guts out. And it's loud. You know, when you cry that hard, and some of you guys have had that experience, it's not really a quiet endeavor. But, I don't know, there's still enough of a macho in me that I don't want my wife to know that I'm crying. I certainly don't want the kids to know I'm crying. So I'm, you know, I'm grabbing the pillow off the couch and I'm practically <laughs> smothering myself <laughs> to stop crying. And, you know, they didn't hear, hey, what's going on down there? <laughs> what's up? I'm like, I'm <coughs> just watching a little ESPN. I'll be up soon. <laughs> you know? And so it took me about another 30 minutes to compose myself. I switched the channels or something else, you know. And I was able to compose myself to get upstairs. But, you know, Nadine's a pretty sharp lady. As soon as I walk in the room, she says to me, what's wrong? And, and the floodgates burst. And, I, and again, I just, I mean, there was no containing it. There was, a, there was a wailing. There was a mourning that happened that could not be stopped. It was like the dam truly burst. There was no amount of strength that I had. There was no amount of self-control I had that could hold back. This morning, I was broken. I was absolutely broken in the moment. And I thank God so much for Nadine. In that moment, I put my head on her lap, and she just loved me. She let me cry and cry and cry for a very long time until there were no more tears for crying. It took me three months. But eventually, I was able to have my moment of mourning privately, where I didn't have to be strong for anybody else. That kind of mourning, that kind of wailing from the depth of your being, that's what this word means. When the scripture says, when Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, to give you context, that's the power. That's the, that's the oomph of mournfulness that he's re referring to. And I have to admit, even as I think back upon that 20-year-old event, that pain was better than numb. I was numb for three months. Pain, mourning, is better than numb. Neuropathy is not a good thing. The inability to feel is not good. 
I don't care if it's physical or emotional or spiritual. The inability to feel is just unhealthy. We have these feelings. God gave us this ability. When he designed us, he factored that in. And here, oddly enough, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Now, universally, as I did research, I looked at the different commentaries I own, this verse is relating to sin. They see it in that context as grief or separation from God, grief at our separation from God, or any action or activity that creates a separation from him. Grief at, our, at the condition of our world or our nation or the church or the lost or the condition of our own hearts, sometimes cold, sometimes hard. So the word mourn here, accurately, I think an accurate application of the word mourn would be to be brokenhearted. Mourning is the breaking of a cold-heartedness. It certainly was my experience that morning. There was a, there was a hardness placed up around my heart with, with good intentions, but hardness nonetheless, that was finally broken. And I was able to experience the full intensity of my emotions. So I believe that this verse, when Jesus says, blessed are the mournful, he's talking about there's a blessedness in brokenness. I think that's an understanding of it. There is a blessedness in brokenness. And I think there's other, as other parts of Scripture that, that um, back up that assertion. Psalm 51.7. Scripture says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I like how it says it in the Amplified. Same verse. Psalm 51, 7. My sacrifice, the sacrifice acceptable to God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, broken down with sorrow for sin, and humbly and thoroughly penitent. Such, O oh God, you will not despise. And another one of my favorite verses, Isaiah 30, 42, 3. <laughs> Speaking of Jesus, says, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And you know he's not talking about grass and candles in this text, right? He's talking about us. When we feel like that bruised weed or that wick that is barely smoldering, that's how he sees us. He will not snuff us out. I can tell you what, it's good. It's very good to be broken. The broken are humble. God can use the humble. And he exalts them with his mighty right hand in his perfect timing. Scripture tells us. The broken are teachable and can be instructed. The broken have servant hearts. They serve for the purpose of serving. <laughs> Not to be noticed for their quote-unquote, humble service. The broken are not prideful, and they're not selfishly ambitious. Truly, the Beatitudes, my friends, <laughs> are counterculture, counter to our culture, for sure. 
in the world's kingdom, we don't value brokenness. In God's kingdom, brokenness is valued. The poor in spirit and the mournful are not self-reliant. They're not self-sufficient. And let me explain what I mean by brokenness. Anybody here ever ride a horse? We have a few people, right? A properly broken horse still maintains all of its strength, still maintains all of its power. It's simply submitted to the control of the rider. A horse that's not broken has lots of power and has enormous amount of strength, but is completely out of control. My understanding of brokenness from a kingdom perspective is that. Not that we're so broken that we lose all of our strength and we lose all of our power and now we're useless to God or anyone else. I don't think that's how he sees it at all. But in our place of brokenness, we're like a horse that's been properly broken, meaning this, truly, that we sustain, we retain all of our strength, all of our power. But all that power and strength is submitted to the will of the rider. I don't use that power and strength to do my own thing. I, I utilize all that power and strength to do his thing. We go where he wants to go. We run when he wants to run. We stop when he wants to stop. And you know, the brokenhearted are the very ones that Jesus came for. He came for the brokenhearted. Luke 4.18, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61.1. He says, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. I've noticed about the broken is that they're unoffendable. People can't offend them. God can't offend them. I've been offended by both God and people. How about you? One of the ways I've learned that his ways are not my ways is he does something his way, and I'm not really happy about it, and offends me. But consider Jesus' words to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. Now think about it. Of John the Baptist, Jesus said he's the greatest prophet. Right? He, John the Baptist recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. John baptizes Jesus. And when he does, the heavens are open, the Spirit descends, God's audible Spirit shows up. John the Baptist could have made the cover of Charisma magazine. Signs of wonders, baby. John was there when he heard Jesus preach his first sermon out of Luke 4, when Jesus says, again, quoting Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Good message, right? God will preach. John's in prison. <laughs> Matthew chapter 11, John's in prison. And he's thinking, wait a minute, this thing isn't lining up exactly like I thought it would. What about the whole setting the prisons free, cuz? <laughs> you know? How about you let me out? You know, are you really the one? Remember, he sends his messengers to Jesus asking, hey, are, are you the one? 
And Jesus' response, oh, man, you know, I've been, my itinerary is so busy. I've got all these ministry meetings lined up. I'm really sorry. Right after my television appearance on CBN, I'll come right over and I'll release you from prison, just like I preached that I would, right? That's not at all what Jesus said. Jesus told him all the good things that happened. Took the healed, right? Blind see. Lame walk. And then Jesus ends what he says in Matthew eleven six with this. This is what he says to the guy in prison who he hasn't go to sleep. He says, blessed are those who are not offended because of me. That's, what Je- that's the message Jesus sends back to him. And guess what? John never did get out of prison. And they really did cut his head off. Sometimes his ways are not our ways. John, the Baptist, was offended by God. He was certainly, if he wasn't offended, he, he wouldn't have sent messages saying, hey, are you really the one? You know, I said you were the one, and I was the first one to recognize you were the one, and I saw the Spirit of God, you know, fall on you like a dove. I heard the audible voice when I baptized you, and I said I wasn't worthy to untie your sandals, but my circumstances have changed, and I don't like these circumstances. And you're not doing what I expected you to do. You're not doing it the way I expected you to do it, Messiah. John the Baptist was offended. I think one of the benefits of brokenness is that we become less offendable. How about Mary and Martha at Lazarus' death? I mean, read through that account. I won't go through it in detail here. They had expectations. They were close. You stayed at my house, man. We were friends. We were tight. You'd come to home group at my house. <laughs> I cooked for you. And you let my brother die. I know you had the power to prevent that. But you let Lazarus die, and he's your good friend. I don't get it. They were offended. God's ways are not our ways. And when he does things his ways, because you know, we pray the stupid prayer, and we ask him to, right? Oh, God, have your way with me. <laughs> Whatever you want to do, I don't care what the cost is. You've all prayed the stupid prayer at least once in your life, right? And then God answers the stupid prayer, and it offends us when he does. I've been offended by God. Yeah, you prayed the stupid prayer, I know. How about this? I mean, tell me this isn't offensive. Matthew 15 is the Canaanite woman who comes and pray, asks that uh, Jesus would heal her daughter. Listen to this account, verse 22. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him, to Jesus, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, because she keeps crying out after us. He answered, he answered, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. If I call one of your kids a dog when they were sick and you asked me to pray for them, you'd be pretty offended at me. I'm thinking this woman's not too happy. But she continued to press in. She 
there was something broken in her because of the circumstances of her daughter's condition, she would not be denied. Offense would not prevent her from pressing forward. She says, yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, (laughs) you have great faith. Your request is granted, and her daughter was healed at that very hour. She could have stopped at the point of offense, right? If she was not broken, if she was still prideful enough, if she was still arrogant enough, even justifiably, she could have stopped at the point of offense. There's a blessedness to brokenness. She was broken enough to press through the offense. And it got her what she most really wanted. Have you ever been offended by God? I have. Years ago, God sent us to West Virginia. I know it was him who sent us. I don't want to go into all the details of the story. Most of you have heard it already. But God sent us from New York to go plant a church in West Virginia. We went because he told us to. We got revelation. We took great care in interpreting that revelation and used godly wisdom in applying it. We went because he said to go. And while we were there, we connected to a local church by divine appointment that God set up for me to to connect with. Another long story. But I can tell you all these years later, I know it was him. And those people treated me terribly. It was my first real experience of being abused by the church, of being used and abused by Christian ministers for their own selfish gain at my expense. They were terrible to me. And God sent me there. I can remember one point, we're there at this church, and I'm just watching what's going on, and this one day God speaks to me. And he tells me that the senior pastor is going to leave the church and that the associate pastor will take his place, that the associate pastor will have a moral failure and that I would take the associate pastor's place. I'm thinking, wow, what do I do with revelation like that? Let me give you a hint. You do nothing with revelation like that. God speaks something like that to you. You put that in your back pocket. You sit and you just watch and you wait. If it's him, it's him. If it's not, well, you'd really be happy to keep that in your back pocket. And so that's what I did. I just put that in my back pocket and I prayed. I prayed that it wouldn't happen. I wasn't asking for it. It did help me in the midst of the circumstances. These people are treating me so terribly, but God, is this your purpose? Do I need to endure this terrible treatment because you have some greater plan at the other end? So it helped me at least hang in there for a while longer. And then over the next few months, I watched this scenario play out. Much to everyone's surprise, the senior pastor got up. He'd been there a very long time and said that he was leaving. He was taking another church in another, another state. I was thinking, wow, man, God told me that. And then the church wrestled for a few months over who was going to be the new senior pastor, and lo and behold, they hired the associate pastor. Three months later, <laughs> the associate pastor ran away with one of the women in church. He literally ran away. He left a, a letter on his desk and got his wife's best girlfriend, and they got in the car with one of her two kids, 
and drove away, ran away. So I'm sitting there and I'm watching this. I'm thinking, dang, this is three out of four, right? I mean, if I sat here and I took a deck of cards and flipped over the first card and told you what it was, and then I flipped over the second card and told you, know, told you what it was that flipped it over, and then the third card, if I called out the name of the fourth card, you might be starting to believe me that I'm going to get it right because I got the first three right. Well, that's the kind of, that's what I'm thinking. Man, God gave me this revelation long before any of this began to happen, and I watched the first three things happen, <laughs> just like God said. I'm thinking, hey, man, let's get the nameplate for my office door. Let's polish that baby up. I get all the business cards right now. And I'm, I, I am expecting that the rest of this is going to play out just like I saw it. <laughs> it was more than just a little bit of ambition in me. And a little bit of self-righteousness. These people treated me like crap. Now it's going to be my turn. <sighs> Happened just like we thought it would. Until that last part. And the elders called me in for a meeting. I'm thinking, ooh, this is it. This is the day. And at that meeting, they told me that they were releasing me. That there was no place for me at the church. Not only was I not getting the top position, they were basically asking me to leave because there was no place. Me. I remember sitting there thinking, what? Are you kidding me? What do you mean there's no place for me? This place is a disaster area right now. You got no place for me? There's always been a place for me. And usually it's been the leader. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. Plus, I'm thinking to myself, don't you know what God told me? <laughs> Apparently they didn't know. <laughs> I was offended when I drove out of that parking lot that day. I certainly had expectations. I was devastated. I'd sacrificed everything to follow God. I'd heard correctly on the first three out of four. And I was rejected and offended by church leadership. I was broken. I was disappointed. And for quite a while after that, I mourned the loss of unfulfilled expectations. Learn something in that process. And if you're taking notes, this you want to write down. When expectations are unfulfilled, when prophetic expectations are unfulfilled, I've discovered that there are four degenerative steps that we usually spiral down through unless something stops us. And these are usually the four steps when our prophetic expectations are not met. The first is that we begin to doubt the prophetic word. You know, did God really say? You know, was, that, was that really a word from God? And if that takes root and holds on for a while, then we begin to doubt the prophetic person. Well, is the person who gave me that word, can I trust them? And once that takes hold for a while, the next spiral down is this. Can I really trust prophetic ministry at all? Does God still speak today? And then the worst step when that one takes hold is, can I really trust God? Is he trustworthy? And maybe more than anything else, this is what he was trying to teach me in that time. I don't know. I'm not sure I fully learned all the lessons needed to learn. But those four steps is first we doubt the prophetic word, 
Then we doubt the person who gave us the word. Then we doubt prophetic ministry altogether. And then when it's had its full degenerative work in us, we begin to doubt God. Can I trust God? Well, in that circumstance, I went straight to the bottom. I passed the first three and went right to four. God, I, and I wrestled with this. Do I, do I still want to be a Christian? Do I still want to follow him? I'd never, I'd been a Christian a long time at that point. I'd never, at that point, I'd never gotten to that point before where I would wrestle with, do I still want to follow him? And I tell you what, I wrestled with that for 18 grueling hours. It wasn't like it was a fleeting thought and I just dismissed it. Well, that's ridiculous. Okay, I'll just go on. I, I considered it. I weighed it. I thought about it. I wrestled with it for 18 hours. Would I still follow him? Could I still trust him? Was it all worth it? I remember being at work. I was working for Northrop Grumman in Clarksburg, West Virginia at the time, and I had a... Um, I had a little cassette tape recorder on my workbench, and I'd, I'd play music, and I had, I had some tape in there. I think out of desperation, maybe a little worship music will help me. And it was an old song. I wish I could tell you it was something that was fresh and new and had all this anointing on it. It was an old song from when I first got saved back in the mid-'70s. It was the old song that went, you know, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Remember that? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I had goosebumps thinking about that moment. When I heard that song, I realized in that moment, as broken as I was, as disappointed as I was, as offended as I was, I'd already made this. I made the decision to follow him a long time ago. And that decision was being tested. I'm glad I said yes. It was hell. It broke me. <laughs> Those were 18 hours of being broken, of truly mourning. Could I truly trust him? I've heard it said that brokenness is an indicator of our maturity or our immaturity. God offends the mind to reveal the heart of the immature. That's what he did to me. He offended my, my mind, and it revealed my heart. My immaturity was revealed. I've heard it said that the immature will ask this question, can I trust God? The mature will ask another question, can God trust me? One of the things I learned in that whole process was I wasn't ready to pastor that church. God already knew I wasn't ready to pastor that church. I needed to know I wasn't ready to pastor that church, and I wasn't ready. Looking back now, looking back to who Tom was then, now I can see it. Man, I couldn't see it then. That had to be broken. I know it now, I didn't know it then. And isn't that the point? We, we don't know what we don't know. I've had, to look, I had to, I've had to go around that mountain a couple of times in my life. I don't know what I don't know, but God knows. The blessing of brokenness 
take a look at it from Peterson's perspective in the message. He says, that same verse, verse, verse was a verse two, I think, the second beatitude. He says, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you, only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. I love the way he interprets this, this sense, this, this, this text, this second beatitude. He says, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. And that was the point I got through. That morning I went through, that brokenness that I experienced was that, you know what? I'm still going to follow him. I've had other experiences in my life. I'm sure you have too. Two bouts with cancer, guys, has broken me in ways that I can't, you know, even, you know, admit. It's just, you know, hearing that diagnosis was devastating. Struggling to pastor a church while dealing with it the first time was, was pretty crushing. And then the second time, I'm not, still not sure I fully understand it all. God moves us to Texas, away from everything that's familiar, comfortable, all the systems we had set up in place. I'm working for John Paul Jackson, holy cow. I'm there just weeks. After my house sold, under expedited conditions, miraculous expedited conditions, to get us there. Only to find out the cancer was back. We sang that song today, He Loves Me. One of the darkest moments of my life was going through chemo that second time. I was in so much pain. I hadn't slept in days. I hadn't eaten in days. My body was racked in pain from chemotherapy. And I cried out, God, take me. I wanted to die. <laughs> I did. Just take me home. I, I wish I could tell you I'm trying to over-dramatize it for a good story. I wanted to die. It was better than being alive at that moment. And somebody posted that song like Kim Walker on Facebook. That's what you do at 4 o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep. You go on Facebook, right? And I clicked the song. God loves me. Man, he uses music at some of the darkest moments of my life. And the words of that song, the power in it, the truth in that song, took that pain I was in, and it broke it. The dam burst. I wept and wept. And I, I don't understand what happened in that moment, but something changed. It's good to be broken. I know I hate cancer. I hate cancer. I hate it. It's a horrible disease. My father has an expression. He says, nothing is all bad. <laughs> I've learned some things in cancer. It's broken me. It's humbled me. It's changed me. It's made me more compassionate. I know it's made me a whole lot less judgmental. It's changed the way I minister to the broken and to the powerless. It's helped me learn to trust God even when I don't understand There's a blessedness to brokenness. 
Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. That is, uh, that's exactly what I experienced that night. I was in a mournful state. When you're crying out to die, I think we could call that mourning or brokenness. And in that point, through the power of a song, the Spirit came and comforted me. I remember singing, I don't have time to maintain these aggressions when I think about the way he loves me. And something inside of me changed in that moment. It was the blessedness of brokenness. I was comforted by his spirit. Let me have a little bit more here. I was reading something from uh, William Barclay's commentary, a text out of his classic work, The Master's Men. And he's talking about the lives of James and John. Remember James and John, they sat on Jesus' left and right. They were asking for that position on the left and the right. When Jesus comes in his glory, remember James and John? <laughs> Man, even from the beginning of the church, there was selfish ambition and pride, right? <laughs> It's been there from the start. Who's the greatest among us? Oh, man. We still battle that, don't we? And so when they ask for that, Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup I drink? And they're like, sure, why not? And Jesus says, says to them, you will. So in Barclay's commentary on this, this is what he writes. Let me, I'll read a, a little quote from it. He says, so then both of the brothers drank the cup of Christ. Let us see what the cup of Christ was. John went to Ephesus. He lived almost a hundred years and died in peace, full of years and honor. James, his life was short and came to a swift end and suddenly through martyrdom by the sword and yet both drank the cup of Christ. He says, there's a Roman coin which has as its inscription the picture of an ox head facing an altar and a plow with the words inscribed, ready for evil. So we got this Roman coin. There's an inscription on it. The inscription is an ox head facing an altar and a plow. And the inscription says, ready for evil. The ox must be ready for dramatic sacrifice of the altar or for the long routine of plowing. The Christian who dies in one heroic moment and the Christian who lives a long life of fidelity to Christ both drink the cup of Christ. So the Christian also must be ready for either. My journey, my journey in Brooklyn on a Memorial Day weekend with my father, my journey in West Virginia, my journey through two battles with cancer has convinced me that first we drink the cup, then we discover our fate. In the end, it doesn't really matter. The pay is the same, right? For me, the key to readiness is I'm already dead. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, my life is not my own. Philippians 1.20 says, to live is Christ and die is gain. 
your altars. So Lord, what will it be today? Altar or plow? Either way, my answer is yes. So there's a blessedness and brokenness. Blessed on the mournful. They will be what? They'll be comforted. This word comforted means that they'll be embraced. That they'll be loved. This word comfort is exactly what Nadine did to me when I cried uncontrollably in her lap that night. She comforted me. She held me. She stroked my head. She let me cry. She whispered in my ears, it'll be okay. It's okay. It makes me think of a warm blanket, a comforter, right? On a cold winter day. That's, what, that's what's promised to us. Blessed are those who mourn. They will feel the warm presence of God wrapped around them as comforters. Experiencing the embrace of God. And the word here is, is where we get the word paraclete. It's the one who comes alongside. It gives me the picture in mind of a soldier helping a wounded soldier off the battlefield, or a player helping an injured player off a football field. That's what the paraclete does. He comes up underneath the cripple, the lame, the walking, and helps them. It means to exhort, to encourage, to strengthen. It's what the prophetic is supposed to do, if I understand 1 Corinthians 14.3. It's the same word Jesus uses when he describes the Holy Spirit as the comforter. Blessed are those who mourn. They will receive the benefit of the paraclete. The presence of the Holy Spirit is one who comforts. It's the same Greek root word. It means to console or to receive consolation. In our brokenness, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us. He embraces us. He covers us like a warm blanket. God does not despise my brokenness. In it, he's taught me to trust him, and that's the biggest deal of all. Can I trust him? Every circumstance, every time he's done things, not the way I've expected him to do them, that's the question. Can I trust him? And repeatedly... I've learned that the answer to that question is yes. I can trust him. He's taught me to trust him. That he's big and I'm not. And he's bigger than my circumstances. He's bigger than my understanding of those circumstances. And it's in the process of maturing me to a place he can trust me. Even when things don't make sense to Tom's logical mind, in that place he binds up my broken heart. So we've learned so far in two weeks that kingdom citizens are characterized by being poor in spirit. They're humble. By being mournful. They're broken. They yield to the Spirit of God. And to us belong, as citizens, the kingdom of heaven and the comfort of God.
kingdom character, like most things in our lives, are tested in the hard times, not the good times. But indeed, those times are a blessing. Next week, we'll take a look at Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Actually, in two weeks, next week, Kyle's up. But when I come back from vacation, we'll look at the next Beatitudes. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and the truth that's in your word. For the insights that you've given us from your word. I pray for my friends today, oh God. Some of them are in difficult circumstances. Circumstances that are breaking them. So I ask you to be merciful and be gracious. I pray for my friends that they would know the blessedness of brokenness that they would be unoffendable. That you would teach them your ways as they wrestle with the reality that they're not their ways. And I ask that you would do, just like your word said, send the comforter, send the Holy Spirit to comfort. Let them feel your arms wrapped around them like a warm blanket. Let them know the touch of your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I love you guys.